Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's uh, My name is Santiago Velez. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Uh, joining me today is Oliver Gale, the CEO of Panther Protocol. Welcome, Oliver. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. We're, it's a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, hopefully today we'll do a deep dive into the Panther Protocol and have our audience uh, learn something new about uh, privacy, institutional uh, pools, and many other interesting things. Uh, before we get to that, I'd like to do a little bit of a brief on the crypto markets. Uh, we continue to see some retracement uh, in Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, prices are um, correcting slightly today, uh, and it's a, a kind of a reflection of the the phase of the market that we're in. We're likely to see more sideways consol consolidation for a while. Uh, Ethereum also similar uh, price action, uh, responding very much to uh, Bitcoin. Uh, which is kind of a contrast to overall equities. You know, we're seeing equities continue their rally. Uh, probably a lot of volatility this week with the Fed, uh, uh, the Fed um, discussions on rates. Uh, so you know, stand by on that. Any thoughts on the markets, Oliver? What do you? What's your view? I think we're in a pretty good place in terms of the markets. Uh, from a fundamental perspective, the Ripple case. I don't think we can underestimate the importance of. The rulings that were passed and really drawing a distinction between securities offering and a security token and creating that space that the industry needs to have tokens which are freely traded in decentralized systems and for me that's massive and price responded which i you would say is more of a fundamental reassessment of what the value of uh, things like bitcoin and ethereum ripple etc should be so retracement uh, to me that's short-term noise this is longer to short traders they're playing their own microstructure games where we are is in a pretty healthy place maybe markets continue sideways for the remainder of the year maybe not so long i certainly think 2024 will be a bull market and we will see bitcoin in the sixty thousand dollar range and everything that comes with it so that's that's how I feel about the markets, and uh, it, you know, we're building technology, and we do make educated guesses around where we think the market structure is going, and so we're playing our hand accordingly. That's fantastic, great assessment. You know, I, I tend to agree, and we were talking earlier off camera about uh, kind of the energy that we're seeing at conferences at ECC, for example, in in, in Paris, and it's a very bullish um, atmosphere. It seems the attitude. Uh, definitely is about building um, and those uh, those projects and communities that kind of made it through this bear market are pretty resilient and they're definitely um, responding to, as you said, some of the regulatory clarity we're seeing in the United States around how um, courts might look at crypto assets in relation to security status. So all great points. Thank you very much for that. Um, so 
let's get right down to it. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the crypto space, uh, and then what led you to Panther Protocol and kind of what the problem was that you and your team saw and what you're trying to solve. Sure. So I got into the crypto space in early 2013, bought my first Bitcoin around $100. Uh, and actually the first Bitcoin was at $200, which was a local peak in around March uh, of 2013. So like many traders came in, got attracted to the, uh, the excitement around this volatile asset class and read the white paper got involved in Bitcoin talk heavily and shortly thereafter set up the first Bitcoin mining company called Carib uh, Hash and the first Caribbean Bitcoin exchange called Caribcoin, which later rebranded to Bit.com. And so through that journey, we lost uh, banking in Barbados. We got banking briefly to power the exchange, lost it, saw the value and importance of things like stable coins, issued one of the first stable coins in the Barbados digital dollar. Then we lost banking and uh, had to cash collateralize that instrument. And it really was very difficult to run what was the best funded fintech company in the Caribbean and also the most progressive in terms of using blockchain technology, but using cash counting machines and mm. not even having the technology of a checkbook. So I was CFO and president of the company at that time, one of two co-founders. And so we turned to central banks and the potential of blockchain technology to issue legal tender directly secured the first commercial contract with the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank to deploy a central bank digital currency. And uh, around that time, had also secured a Series A from Overstock to build out the central bank digital currency thesis. So that was a, a global first mover maneuver that we made out of Barbados with fast moving governments devastated by natural disasters and in need of technologies that could help leapfrog payment systems and stimulate economic growth and blockchain technology and Bitcoin were perfect for that. So that was the first four or five years in Web3. Uh, in 2018, I left management entirely at bit.com and set up my own venture studio called Base2 and through base to built a number of asset management firm, uh, asset management arm, advisory arm to that business, and then incubated a consumer credit platform called Elemental. And so that took me up to about 2020, at which point I met my co-founder at Panther, Anish Mohammed. And so he and I really connected first and foremost, the conversation was around how can I apply homomorphic encryption to remove the data silos of national banks and commercial banks that are holding this valuable information that can help provide affordable credit to everyone, but have no incentive to do so. And so that conversation branched into a number of discussions around privacy. I, uh, I've been in a big advocate of privacy technologies was a miner of Darkcoin before it was rebranded to Dash in 2013, had a, a large Caribbean-based GPU mining farm. Also was an early investor in Monero. And so for me, the role of cash in emerging markets, places like the Caribbean are 60% cash-denominated payments. Obviously cash is the most anonymous form of payment. It's also a bearer instrument. And that was the 
genesis of why we thought central bank digital currency should be built on the Bitcoin blockchain as a digital legal tender instrument. And a side story, but that's part of the reason I left. I didn't agree with the architecture being implemented for CBDCs. And so in my discussions with Anish, we were exploring, hey, privacy is a massive, um, it's, a, it's a massive need in the Web3 space. Obviously it wasn't called Web3 at the time, uh, but also one that is ubiquitous and the need for private digital cash is massive if you look at just the size of the M1 money supply for the US dollar, $32 trillion or so. And so it was that thought process that became the catalyst for Panther Protocol. And as we began to work through the problems of how, how do we maintain composability for DeFi on protocols like Ethereum, how do we accept the cross-chain, multi-chain future, which we thought and still believe is likely with uh, L1s and L2s. And also how do we, uh, how do we enable some compatibility with compliance um, so that, you know, we can actually embrace the, the, the end game where you have enterprises and retail both utilizing uh, Web3 technology. So all of those sort of problem solution spaces and, uh, both, I would say, um, moral, ethical considerations, as well as practical considerations, went into the thinking part of Panther Protocol. Wow, fantastic rundown. And I'm sure out of that entire summary, uh, many of our users are going to have questions about a lot of what you, you said today. Hopefully, we'll try to touch on those uh, in the interview. But if, if questions remain, please save them for the end of the show. We'll, we'll try to hit as many users' questions as possible. Uh, but uh, a great summary. Thank you for that. So um, Panther Protocol was formed uh, in general to address some of the problems around privacy and as they relate to DeFi. It, can you talk a little bit about what Panther Protocol is? Is it a blockchain? Is it a software? What exactly it is? And exactly how it implements privacy? Uh, we can get a little bit into ZKP and those kind of things. And then why that's an attractive uh, uh, or value-added component for both retail and institutions. So uh, first of all, what, what is Panther Protocol? Yeah, sure. So in a soundbite, Panther is an interchain asset agnostic privacy-preserving infrastructure for DeFi. It's a privacy layer, and it's a layer that allows existing DeFi protocols to benefit from the privacy that can be afforded using ZK SNARKs and a large anonymity set. Um, Panther is not an L1 or L2 blockchain. It is a DAP built on top of L1 and L2 chains. So we made that decision fairly early on because we don't really believe that it's necessary for us to be involved in the arms race between L1 and L2 chains uh, for scalability, security, adoption and the network effects. We actually believe that the network effects of Ethereum are colossal as is today, as are some of the contenders that are vying for top spot with Ethereum and probably unlikely to uh, take top spot from Ethereum. So we look at essentially the proliferation of L1 and L2 chains across the Web3 universe, specializations here or there 
and recognize that most of these chains are public blockchains and all transaction history is available on these chains. And therefore, each one of these public blockchains requires some privacy preserving technology. And so by taking the approach of building a DAP versus being the L1 chain, we get to uh, avoid being in the um, you know, Dar Darwinistic game of becoming the dominant L1 or L2 and can just work with the winners as and when they emerge. And so that chain agnostic approach is core to our philosophy. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. You know, I, I think that's a great point that we should emphasize for our viewers about public permissionless blockchains is that they're pseudo-anonymous in the sense that, uh, you know, they're a wallet-based structure, a database structure. Uh, there's no user accounts, but through uh, some deep chain analytics and connectivity to off-ramps, you can discern uh, who the user is uh, and then ultimately are privy to all the transactions they've ever done with that particular wallet. Um, and so from a long-term perspective, there is uh, different kinds of risks that arise both for retail from a security perspective, but also institutional from a business perspective uh, on having all of their transaction history be available to everyone in the world. Uh, and so that, that's clearly a problem uh, in need of a solution. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about maybe how uh, uh, institutions would benefit from privacy protocols like Panther? Yeah, sure. I think the best example has been the emergence of an entire industry around selling on-chain analytics. So that would have begun probably with Elliptic. I, they're the first that I can think of in terms of selling on-chain data. Uh, chain analysis followed soon after, and now there's a whole suite of these technology data service providers. And what they primarily have focused on is on-chain analytics as it relates to AML compliance and knowing your customer and knowing their source of funds. And so, which is a necessary function for a financial institution that wants to, you know, integrate into the world at large. So if you want access to Visa and MasterCard and American Express and a hundred million point of sale terminals around the world, et cetera, the, the system as we know it today, then AML uh, tools are required. So this is part of that function. However, what we've seen is the sophistication of this on-chain forensics uh, becoming more advanced and uh, second secondary types of markets emerging just for the selling of what I would term alpha. So who are the big wallets? Who are the big institutions or VCs or traders? What are their strategies? What's in their portfolio? What are they buying? What are they selling? Where are they trading? Uh, all of this is information that can be discerned on chain using statistical analysis and is discerned on chain and now being sold to anyone who's willing to pay for these services. And so that erodes the alpha of these players. It, and as you mentioned, it also opens up security risk for them in terms of, you know where they're custodying, you know where they're trading and executing. So this, you know, it becomes a series of data points that you can analyze and monitor to really find out more about 
your counterparty and figure out what the attack surface can or should be. So Panther addresses all of this from the perspective of an enterprise or a fund or a venture firm that wants to trade their assets or even transact or interact with Web3 protocols on chain. And it, and it provides this level of uh, anonymity through what is a privacy set. And so at the heart of the Panther protocol is what we call a multi-asset shielded pool. Mm. And what the multi-asset shielded pool does, as the name suggests, it accepts multiple asset types, so fungible, non-fungible assets, different types of fungible and non-fungible assets. And all of these assets go into this macro mixer, if you will, and uh, the Panther protocol itself then interacts with DeFi uh, contracts on behalf of the users within that multi-asset shielded pool, the shielded pool, if you will. And so these, these users, they might be retail users, enterprise users, have a zero knowledge proof of ownership. And that is a claim against some of the assets that are held within the multi-asset shielded pool. And so the user can deposit assets into the Panther protocol, uh, which involves an onboarding process and um, connection to and creation of a, a zero knowledge digital identity and some zero knowledge compliance services to sort of authenticate and verify who they are in a confidential fashion. And from there, these users can then do things like swap their assets on Uniswap or Curve, take a loan on Aave, uh, as well as a series of other functions which are native to Panther protocols, such as peer-to-peer -peer, uh, transactions and also an internal on-chain dark pool. So once you're onboarded into the Panther protocol, there's this powerful uh, universe of tools that is being made available to users. Each of these tools is essentially made available through an adapter. And so as the Panther protocol grows in the ecosystem, grows adapters will be built to different DeFi uh, service providers to enable users to execute transactions with those services without having to leave the confidential and safe environment that the Panther protocol affords them. Wow, okay, so there's a lot to unpack there really quick. I'd love to, um, first, my understanding of the zero knowledge proofs involved is that you can disclose a particular um, set of information without revealing the entirety of the data set. In other words, you can prove something uh, without having to, you know, say exactly what it was that you're 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 trying to prove. And, and then that's, that's a very essential aspect to, for example, AML or KYC, uh, knowing who your counterparties are, because frankly, in DeFi, you know, you go on Uniswap and connect your wallet. You don't know who your counterparties are. You don't know who the other person is on on that side of the trade, uh, and that's problematic for institutions, I, I believe, because uh, you could be trading with with anybody, and you don't know whether they're compliant. Um, so, what I understand here is that not only do we have a privacy aspect to this, but we have a way to uh, disclose certain aspects about uh, ourselves, our, our digital identity, and our carnal parties. And we then know that we are in um, appropriate sets of, uh, of eligible uh, traders or, or pool of traders. And I think that's a hugely underestimated aspect that is precluding large ins institutional adoption of DeFi. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, maybe how, how uh, you know, these these blinded pools um, and these large sets of assets 
how does that work? Do I have to worry about having a large quantity of an asset so that it is mixed and blind or, or, or can, can I share some of the properties of other assets in the pool? How, how does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. And that, that's really the, you know, the multi-asset component of our shielded pool was one of the first innovations that we sought to, um, sought to and, and managed to achieve architecturally. So I mentioned earlier that composability was one of our fu fundamental pillars of if we're going to create a privacy preserving protocol, one pillar is that we do not want to have to bootstrap the anonymity set and the network effects from the ground up. That's a really underestimated challenge, uh, building liquidity, far less building a universe of liquidity for multiple different uh, financial products. So that composability component, preserving that's important. We then started looking at, well, you know, the challenges around bootstrapping a, uh, an anonymity set for say Ethereum and then having to bootstrap a, a new anonymity set for USDT as an example or DAI. Each one of these would pose a problem. So by uh, implementing a multi-asset shielded pool where essentially the instruments themselves are on the same Merkle tree uh, and shielded under the same ZK-SNARK scheme, you're able to share the network effect of privacy for one uh, asset type with another. And that also then extends to things like NFTs. So there is this collective requirement to build a large anonymity set. And however, that anonymity set will provide the privacy properties to a new asset type that is deposited into the shielded pool. Now, there is no such thing as perfect privacy and anyone who claims that that's the case um, maybe doesn't understand it well enough. So there's a statistical or probabilistic level of privacy available. And there are, so if you have very, very large deposits into a pool of moderate size and then very, very large withdrawals, then there is some ability to statistically infer what might be happening. And, uh, and that's unavoidable, it will happen anywhere. So, what Panther is doing is, however, as that pool is larger, it becomes more difficult. So the longer assets are held within the shielded pool and the larger the pool of assets and the more transactions taking place within the shielded pool, the better the privacy set is. And Panther protocol is incentivizing this behavior, depositing assets in the shielded pool, transacting within the shielded pool using RCKP, uh, governance and utility tokens. So that acts as a reward mechanism for simply providing, essentially for self-custodying your assets within the shielded pool environment. Uh, there is no counterparty risk. There is no volatility risk. This is not a loan. This is self-custodying assets and being paid for providing an actual utility function. And I think that that's one of the things that's underestimated. It's not the case with yield farming where there really is no utility. It's just a subsidization mechanic to get people to use it to boost the metrics. This is a real utility that's being provided to the commons within the Panther protocol. And so that is, um, that's an important component. Now, you asked really around the institutional component. Um, I have worked and onboarded uh, national nation states into blockchain technology. Uh, Nigeria is a client of bit.com for their CBDC, as is the Eastern Caribbean, which has eight independent countries under their umbrella and currency union. I've also been part of uh, 
Web3 fintechs that have onboarded over 20 banks to these type of systems are built and run licensed fintechs in the Web3 space. So I know what is required and, and what that thinking is. And the thinking is essentially, if I cannot verify who counterparties are either absolutely or statistically with a high degree of certainty, I'm running a risk where that risk is that my regulator will revoke my license, I'll lose access to any national payment system, any ancillary services, compliance, and all of the things really necessary to offer the type of one-click financial service that the world has come to expect. In other words, if you're not able to satisfy these requirements, you are not going to be in this next wave of mass adoption for Web3 technologies. So what Panther has done in terms of being able to selectively disclose transactions using zero knowledge to sort of, hey, I am over the age of 18 and my identity is valid and here is proof of that. You don't need to know anything about me. Verify the proof cryptographically right. Now you've verified it, you know that my claim is actually intact and I haven't had to disclose anything about myself. So zero knowledge compliance has massive implications in terms of reducing cost structures of securing data and repeating compliance costs at every on and off ramp to a service. What Panther's done is, and you know, this is I think one of the biggest value propositions aside from the multi-asset shielded pool that we've come up with is segregate the shielded pool into logical partitions known as zones. And each zone has a zone manager that essentially represents the equivalent of a virtual asset service provider who has applied for and received the license to operate that zone. They can set, it's a walled garden at this point, so they can set what the credentials and requirements are to get in and out of the zone and they are able to collect the data of what transactions take place within their zone. The protocol never custodies this data, the foundation never custodies it, the development company never custodies it. It's exclusively the purview of the zone manager. Examples of zone managers would be brokers, uh, fintechs, wallet operators. In fact, we've had a discussion with one government about operating a zone to allow all of their financial institutions to participate in a zero knowledge national tender instrument which is quite interesting. So zones can be big or small actors. They have the ability to uh, federate and allow transactions to be settled between zones. They all share the, the same privacy set. So there's no requirement to bootstrap liquidity. So if you get licensed as a zone manager and you have zero assets within your shielded pool on day one, that does not mean you have no privacy. You have the global privacy set available to you. That is a, a major, problem being solved here. Again, Panther is constantly thinking about how do we deliver product and a useful uh, tool for users as opposed to how do we recreate the wheel and invite people to bootstrap all the network effects once again. So uh, I hope that's not too long-winded an answer. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. No, it's, it's great. And, you know, I, I think it hits on several really important aspects. Um, there's a lot of concerns with, with individuals about governments rolling out CBDCs uh, and a very dystopian view of privacy and control over uh, money in general. Um, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, you know, there's the cyberpunk movement that has in its core values the idea of privacy 
Um, and that's enshrined in many laws around the government, uh, around the world regarding citizens' rights to be private. And of course, we've talked about the bis business risks of not having privacy for institutional actors and being front run and those kinds of things. So I think this is a very important aspect that will quickly dawn on many of the protocols in the industry that you don't you don't have to just solve scalability, security, those kinds of things. You really need to solve some of these real world problems around privacy and business risk, counterparty risk and compliance. Um, so the thing that I found super interesting about Panther was that it really is trying to um, almost skate where the where the puck's going, right? That that eventually this is this is the kinds of problems that we're going to need solutions for, and it, it won't be this um, you know bifurcated world of everything is 100% tr uh, transparent and everything is 100% uh, you know uh, private like like Monero for example. We're going to have um, a spectrum in between of solutions, and it's going to vary. It's going to vary as you said, uh, depending on the jurisdiction and the and the rules of the road. It's going to depend on the assets and the L1s. Um, so I think it's a very comprehensive view of, of where the space is going. Um, so right now, where is Panther Protocol in this kind of this mission, this, this vision? How much of the product is rolled out or are we in production yet or still testing, that kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, just make Oliver back. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. If you caught that last question, I was just asking uh, where in production, uh, if at all, uh, Panther resides, and when will these solutions that we've been discussing be available for use on various L1s? So Panther has been building this technology since uh, August 2020, and we have begun to roll out testnet. Now we have an eight-stage testnet, and we're on and in the second phase of that testnet. It is an incentivized testnet. Mainnet is technologically scheduled for October, November. Strategically, we are evaluating if that will be the best time. It, you know, will we be uh, at the stage we want to be in terms of having the assurances and the audits done on that code base? But I would expect uh, internally, all expectations are that we are able to launch V1 by the winter. And now V1 does not have zones, but what it does have is the shielded pool, the ability to connect to protocols like Uniswap, QuickSwap, PowerSwap, Curve, and conduct swaps to peer-to-peer uh, -peer transactions to other users privately within the Panther protocol to onboard and create a Z account, which has a connected KYC credential, which is fully authenticated through on-chain protocol to protocol interactions uh, and of course and then of course uh, an internal OTC uh, on-chain dark pool so the user is going to actually match using atomic swaps within the shielded pool itself. Uh, there are relayers connected to this network as well so gas is an important consideration but what the relayer network allows is for gasless transactions and the Panther protocol in that sense is also offering account abstraction. So it's sort of zero knowledge, account abstraction, gasless transactions, and integration and connection to existing DeFi protocols to trade and settle liquidity in a permissionless fashion without disclosing your identity or alpha. Fantastic, you know, there's gonna be a lot to digest for our users. Um, so far, we don't have any any questions, but I think this is the kind of interview that's phase one that we'll have to revisit this 
when things go fully in production and and, and see how the market is receptive to it. Um, Oliver, I want to thank you so much for coming on Real Vision. I hope we'll have you back uh, and we'll keep this discussion going because I think it's, it's super important. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Bear markets are for builders and these guys have been building really well. So thank you again, uh, Oliver, for coming on and we'll, we'll catch you soon. Thank you. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.